You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, activities, excursions, and more in one place to make your trip truly unforgettable. Viator has over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from. Everything from simple tours to extreme adventures and all the niche, interesting stuff in between. So you can plan something that everyone you're traveling with will enjoy. Real traveler reviews give the inside scoop from people who've already been on the experiences you're considering. So you can plan with confidence. Free cancellation helps you plan for the unexpected. And 24-7 customer support means you can travel worry-free. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you'll get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matters more than ever. Place your money line, prop, or parlay bets with the king of sportsbooks today. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. 21 plus and present in Ohio, subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with MGM Northfield Park. May 19, 2017, Netflix released its newest docuseries titled The Keepers. In this series, director Ryan White explores the unsolved murder of sister Kathy Sesnick, who taught English and drama at Baltimore's Archbishop Keough High School, and the believed cover-up by authorities in the Baltimore Catholic Church of sexual abuse of students by Father Joseph Maskell. Prior to Netflix's release, I created a three-part episode on Sister Kathy's murder, and one of the people I interviewed was Gemma Hoskins. Gemma joined me last season to help with the Redhead Murder series, and together we will be exploring into detail Sister Kathy's murder and the impact the Keepers continue to make in the world. My name is Gemma Hoskins. I was a student of Kathy Sesnick when I was at Archbishop Keough High School. And I have since retired from teaching, but she's really the reason I became a teacher. She was a breath of fresh air in that building and in that life for me. I was very fortunate that I was never abused by anybody. I came from a a pretty functional family in the 50s, and my parents were very involved in school. My sister and I were both at Keough at the same time, and dad was there. My mother came to everything, and we did not 
have issues that some of the other girls who are now women may have gone to him about in terms of counseling. About three to four years ago, Tom Nugent, who's a journalist, got in touch with me. He was tracking down as many people from Keogh yearbooks as he could because he wanted to write a story. And that was the story, Who Killed Sister Kathy? And so I helped him with that. I talked to him about what she meant to me. Um, I was fortunate, very fortunate, that as a teacher, I was named the Maryland Teacher of the Year. And I owe that to her because she was an amazing teacher. And I copied what she did, and it worked. Tom felt like that would give his story credibility. And so he and I began a nice long-distance relationship in his writing. And a couple years ago, I sent him an email and said, when are you coming back to finish this story? So let's find how it all began, this last episode. He returned, and we posted in the Keogh alumni page that if anybody wanted to share anything about Kathy or if anybody had any information or had been a victim of abuse by Joseph Maskell that he would like to talk to them. So what happened was a landslide. A lot of people came forward and he kept me in the email loop so that the women that responded would trust that I was on the same email just to give him credibility. He did come to Baltimore. He wrote another story that actually nobody would publish. And we tried to get the Sun Papers and the Washington Post and the New York Times. Nobody wanted to hear about it for many reasons, I guess. There were a lot of legal ramifications. And so Tom began his own webpage, which is, you may have read it, called Inside Baltimore, the real story about Baltimore. So there have been a number of, I guess you would call articles or blogs from Tom. And at that time, three years ago, we started the Facebook pages. That's really grown. Abby Fitzgerald Schaub and I have spearheaded those pages and the investigation. We really have two focus areas. One is to give people who were abused that went to Keogh a place where they can share, and anybody who went to Keogh can be on that page to support them. And right now, I think there's almost 500 women on that page, not all sur survivors, certainly, but they all support those who have come forward. And I think you've talked to some of them. Teresa Harris Lancaster was one of them. The other page is a public page. And I believe that's the one you've joined, Shane. And that one is for us to receive and share in any information about the death of Sister Kathy and also the death of a young woman named Joyce Malecki, who was murdered four days after Kathy disappeared. So it's grown. We have almost 700 people on that page. And today, with the announcement of the documentary, Abby and I have been very busy checking out people who want to join the page because we always kind of screen everybody, even though it's a public page and you can read it without joining it. We don't want any trolls on there. We don't want any advertising on there. 
So we make sure that we have an idea of who they are. And so we're growing. And I think a big tsunami is coming after this documentary. Just to touch back real quick on some of the things you said. First, I want to tell you that I have a lot of respect for you as well as the other people you are working with. And as well as the ladies that have come forward, because we'll use you as an example. You didn't have to come out and make people aware of this. So that's something that, that I think I respect you a lot for doing that. Thank, thank you. Um, I kind of, I hope you'll appreciate this. I've had a lot of ups and downs in my life. I've had a lot of chronic health issues. I was widowed at the age of 35 and I lost my dad a week after my graduation from Kia very suddenly. So I feel like all the ups and downs have gotten me ready for this mission. I'm not religious, but I am holistically spiritual. And I feel like Kathy's driving this bus right now because it has to be done. I'm really driven. People tell me that I'm probably putting myself in dangerous positions. But as our director, Ryan White, says, the more public you are, the safer you are. And I said to him, that kills me. He said, at least we'll know who got you. (laughs) (laughs) But I think I'm okay. Enough people know me now that I'm probably pretty safe. And it's a mission that it has to be done. She did the ultimate sacrifice at the age of 26. Like, how old are you, Shane? I am 27. Okay. No offense, but like, you're a baby. She was 26. <laughs> and all these 16, 15, 16, 17 year old girls are coming to her with these horrible stories or rumors. And what did she do? She laid down her life for her girls. She knew she was in danger. She confronted the devil. And she would not hesitate. This is why she's such an icon to me and to most of the other people that knew her, she was she was a gift to all of us, and it keeps on happening. I've had the opportunity to become really good friends with her sister through this just in the last year. And just as an aside, Kathy's family knew nothing about the abuse, knew nothing about the investigation, knew nothing about Maskell. This is all new, raw information to them. And uh, Kathy and her sister's mom died in the last two years. They found a lot of news clippings. And so apparently her mother was keeping up with the stories, but none of Kathy's sisters knew anything about this. This was like a major shock to them. They've handled it with a lot of grace and dignity under pressure and have really joined the mission and are determined to see justice for Kathy. My life is so rich with the people I've met through this, and it's, they have horror stories, but I feel so blessed to even be included in their circle of friends. It's, it's just amazing for me. I do believe there was, I do believe there was a cover-up on a lot of levels, a lot of levels. What grade were you in when Sister Catherine was murdered? Okay, I was a senior. She left at the end of my junior year. I don't know if you were aware that she left the con- she left Tio in the spring of '69, and she moved into an apartment in the area 
with another young nun, Sister Russell, who was also one of our teachers. And the two of them moved into an apartment and decided that they would like to teach in the public sector or outside of Keogh. There are a lot of theories about why they left. Um, I have my own theory, but there are others. Some people feel like they were part of, they were given permission to take part in like a social experiment where they had already taken their final vows, but they were living outside the convent. In fact, Kathy was teaching at Western High School, and the students over there didn't even know she was a sister. They didn't know she was a nun. And Russell was teaching at North Bend Middle School, which is right next door to the apartments at Carriage House where Kathy and Russ lived. So they shared a car, and Russell would just walk up to the hill to school and Kathy would drive to Western. In the spring, when Kathy told her family she was leaving Keogh, her parents were very disappointed. They were very Catholic, traditional. They didn't like the idea of her leaving there. And her response to them, according to her sister, was, it's much more dangerous for me to stay at Keogh than it is for me to go to a city school. In my mind and in my heart, I believe that she and Sister Russell were really the only two who were willing to do anything about Maskell abusing the students at Keo. And I believe Kathy confronted him and probably was somehow forced out. That's just my opinion. You know the kind of person. She was very feisty. She had more integrity than most people do. And I believe that she needed to be out of that environment. In fact, some of the girls that had confided in her before she left were disappointed because she said, go home for the summer. We will deal with this. And when they came back in the fall, she was gone. And it was that November that she disappeared and was murdered. So I was a senior and uh, we followed the stories, but... She already has left by the end of my junior year. What did you think when, being a senior, what did you think when you first found out that she had disappeared? I can remember that weekend, and we didn't have social media, but boy, the telephones were ringing, and the newspaper actually announced that she was missing. I remember a lot of friends and Keogh students and adults going over there and joining in the search. I did not, I didn't, I don't know if I didn't have my, I guess I have my license, but I don't know why I was not involved in that. We weren't afraid at that point. I think we were curious. She was living outside the convent. Some of us thought maybe she just needed to get away. So we didn't have any details about anything that went on any conversations that had gone on in her apartment or with her family or with Russell. And then as information has come out in the last three years, we know a whole lot more about what happened in her apartment that week and probably that night. So I think curious. And then as time went by, we all just were resigned to thinking maybe she had just run away. And then suddenly in January, her body's found. It was horrible, horrible. 
We had a funeral here at the mother house on Charles Street for all the Keogh students. And then her family had another private ceremony up in Pittsburgh, near Pittsburgh, where they lived. But that day was so bizarre. We went on school buses in our uniforms to say goodbye to her. And it was a nightmare. And then little by little, we began hearing rumors about who did it or what was going on in her life. And it really, Shane, it really wasn't until the early 90s when we all got a letter from James Maggio and his law firm asking us if we knew anything about any abuse at Keogh. And of course, my sister and I didn't. Then again, all the phones are ringing and we started hearing rumors about. In our ongoing journey, dissecting real life mysteries, I've found a perfect companion in a game that not only captivates, but also lets me step into the shoes of a detective in the glamorous 1920s, June's Journey. As someone who's delved deep into the game, playing through the intriguing scenarios of June Parker, I can personally vouch for its immersive experience. In June's Journey, you unravel the mystery of June Parker's sister's murder. Each scene is a visual and intellectual puzzle, with hidden clues scattered across beautifully crafted locations. What I've enjoyed most is the depths of the storyline. Each chapter peels back a layer of this thrilling narrative, revealing danger, mystery, and romance. Besides the allure of solving mysteries, the game lets you design and customize your own luxurious estate island. Building my estate has been a delightful escape, offering a creative break from the intense narratives we tackle on the podcast. For those of you who enjoy the blend of history, mystery, and narrative depth we explore on this podcast, June's Journey offers a chance to live out those elements in a beautifully interactive setting. June needs your help, detective. Download June's Journey for free today on iOS and Android, and join me in this ongoing quest to uncover hidden truths and solve complex mysteries. Maskell abusing girls in the building. You made mention real quick about how you guys found out what happened in the house the weekend and maybe the day of. Could you go into mm-hmm. that a little bit? A little bit. I can't share any confidential information or names. I sure. hope you understand that. Of course. But I do know from some friends that a lot of girls visited her, like with their boyfriends or with their friends. I went with a friend that was in my class during the summer, and we took a pizza over. I'll get back to your question in a minute, but this is just a perfect Kathy story. We took a pizza over, and when we opened it, it was upside down. So she and Russell said they just went and got forks, and we just ate it off the box lid, (laughs) and they were like, They were just fun. We were 18 and they were 26 and it was nothing weird and they were just cool people. I remember being there and Kathy was ironing in shorts and a t-shirt and we just couldn't figure out. It was just funny because we weren't used to seeing her like that and she thought it was funny too. She was a (laughs) dear, wonderful, loving person. And I missed her. I miss her now because of all of this. But the week before... Kathy disappeared. I know a couple friends who visited her. They were not abuse victims, but one went to tell her some good news about getting engaged. And she said Kathy was just different that week, that she seemed really not focused. Kathy always made eye contact with you when you were talking with her, and she was distracted. 
Russell seemed distracted. And so in retrospect, we think that maybe they knew something was going to happen soon. Also know from an unnamed survivor who wishes not to go on the record, which is her certainly her prerogative, that she visited Kathy the night before she disappeared with her boyfriend. And they went in and sat down and Kathy asked if they would like something to drink. And at the same moment, Maskell and Father Magnus, Neil Magnus, who was also at TO and who also we have now learned was an abuser priest. The two of them walked in without knocking, walked into the apartment without knocking. And Kathy and Russ had the teenagers leave. And the next day, Maskell went to the girl who had been at the apartment. Now, you have to remember that Kathy's gone from Keogh. Russ mm-hmm. gone from Keogh. So this young woman is still at Keogh at, at his mercy. He came to her and threatened her and said, if you tell anybody, I'm going to kill your family. I'll kill your boyfriend. And so this is the kind of threat. This is credible. We have enough people sharing these kinds of things with us that don't even know each other. Nobody makes this stuff up. And we talked to we talked to a retired police officer who was a friend of Maskell's. He's now dead. He didn't believe any of it. And when he was asked why would all these girls make up stories, he said just want attention, which is ludicrous. Now Yeah. We have credible evidence that three women, girls, went and confided in Kia in Kathy about Maskell. There were probably more, but I'm a stickler for accuracy. So right now we know of three and we know of I I know Teresa said twenty five mediation clients, but I'm not sure that it's that many, according to my records and the ones that I have facilitated giving them the mediation attorney's contact information is 17 right now. And they're not all women. They went to the law firm and all they can get right now is a financial settlement. And gee, we're sorry. That's it. So they should get something because the statute of limitations is so wrong on this one. And most people don't report until they're in their 30s or 40s. Something was wrong at Kathy's apartment that night. And we have a friend now who was a student at Western, and she spoke to Kathy. Kathy disappeared on a Friday evening. She spoke to Kathy at 1.30 in school at Western on that Friday afternoon. And Kathy was excited and told her that she was going shopping that evening for her sister's engagement gift. And that woman came forward when she heard about our investigation. Going back to when Kathy disappeared, do you know who the last person to speak with her was? Oh, let me think. Who did the last person to see her? Oh, I don't know the last person at Keogh because she wasn't there. But this friend who was at Western 
was probably the last student to speak with her and didn't know that she was a nun. So we understand that Cappy was right. She went to the bank in Edmondson Village, which was a, is a shopping center on Route 40, not far from where she lived. We know that she went into certain stores, none of which are there anymore, unfortunately. And we believe that a purchase was made. The only thing found in her car, and I know you've read all this, but maybe some of the people that are listening don't know, was she had gone to Muley's, which was a bakery in the Heck Company, one of the department stores, and bought buns for the next morning because it was a Saturday. And we believe that she may have bought a gift, but none of that was found, nor were any receipts found. I have no idea who the last person from Keo was that spoke to her. I really don't. It could have been somebody that was visiting her that week. Um, the, my, my theory, and Abby and I, we went to Keo together, but we haven't been like friends since then. We just came back together on this. She's the left brain and I'm the right brain. I don't know if you've talked to her yet, but she's very analytical. She's very data-driven. And I'm like the more emotional one. I'll make the cold calls. And I love talking to people like you. I just have to be really careful what I say and don't say. So I have no problem with sharing my information. But my theory is that she came back to the apartment Parking space is not in view of her apartment. She would have to park around the side of the building. We heard that there may have been an argument. Another Keogh student who was on another street nearby heard an, a loud voice, a man yelling, had no idea what was going on, but in retrospect, it could somebody could have been arguing with her. We have a report from neighbors, or the police have a report from neighbors, that they saw her wave to somebody and follow them in her car out of the parking lot. Now, the police know who that neighbor is. I don't even know if they're living anymore. We had another report that someone saw a woman trying to get out of a car that was going down North Bend Road. And somebody pulled her back in. So the door must have been partially open, if that's accurate. Her car was found directly across the street. It's very possible that I think at least two, maybe three men were involved. I think Maskell choreographed the whole thing. I don't know if he was there, but I think he was somewhere waiting. And I think he hired a couple of dudes. He traveled in a really seedy group of uh, men who were wanted to prostitute these girls. He knew a lot of people that could do the dirty work for him. And I always believed that maybe he paid a couple of these guys because they were disposable to him. So what if they get caught? He didn't care. So my feeling is that perhaps one of them pushed her over to the passenger side. The other might have been in the back seat. We know that she was both strangled and hit in the back of the head with a blunt object, but we don't know exactly when. There was no blood in the car. 
the only thing that was found in her car was there's all rumors about this. There's no yellow thread people that never happened. There was a very long piece of dried grass, almost like seagrass, that was over the turn signal. Now, I've never seen that in anybody's car. It could have happened by mistake. Kathy could have left it. Who knows? She's the type, everything had a symbol. So let's say, for example, she was taken to a wooded area and then for some reason was able to put this thing over the car turn signal. Maybe she was trying to let people know where she had been taken. I don't know. That car might have sat there the whole evening. We don't even know if it left once it was in that parking space across the way. There's rumors that the man across the hall from her could have been involved, in which case he could have left her car there and walked across the street and gone to his apartment. Um, there was a woman on who who was a friend and a survivor who talked on WJZ 13 about she believes her uncle was involved, and that's also a possibility. So everything is in the police hands now. We've been trying to reach out to the cold case detectives for years, and they finally accepted our overture. They agreed to be interviewed for the documentary, and then after that, contacted Abby and I, and we were able to spend an afternoon there with Corporal Robin Teal, who is heading the investigation. And we had a lot of information that apparently the police didn't have. We are doggedly <laughs> driving this thing. We are not giving up. And we're both Good. retired. Abby's a retired nurse, and I'm a retired teacher. And because we were not abused, thank goodness, we can have a little emotional divorce from it so that it's easier for us to deal with some of the information that if we had been survivors, we just probably wouldn't have been able to handle it. Do you understand what I'm saying? Oh, yes. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. When you met with the detectives, did they tell you guys anything that you didn't already know? They're not permitted to. Okay. Uh, So it's more of a listening. It's a cold case. We had been trying, we've been making overtures for the last almost three years. And the cold case detective in charge retired recently, and I'm going to say, I'm just saying, the case is being handled by a woman now. So (laughs) I will let that speak for itself. People can listen between the lines. She's been wonderful. She's been awesome. And we send her information. She can't really uh, give us any information because that could be detrimental to the case that they have. And that's fine. We just want them to have everything we have. And we've done a lot of homework, especially Abby. I have to give her credit. She has dug up archives and gone. We've gone to the Enoch Library and looked through microfiche. Do you even know what that is? Or are you too young? <laughs> I'm too young. However, I do... I have heard you know, of it before. Okay, microfiche is like a strip of, it looks like a film strip. It actually has pictures and articles on it. And you put it in a machine. There's nothing cyber about it. You put it in a machine <laughs> and you actually enlarge it and look at the articles. Because when Kathy 
disappeared, the sun was on strike. So the News American had a lot of articles, but all of those were on microfiche. None of them were on online where we can read them, like on the library archive. So we sat for a day. Ryan went with us. Abby's husband went with us. The librarian was fascinated. She was there working with us. And we looked up everything we can, we could about, about Joyce's murder and about Kathy's so that we would just have fresh eyes on old reports. So speaking of Joyce, let's just jump over to her real quick. Can you get into what happened to her and what you believe may have happened? Sure. The connection between Joyce Malecki and Kathy is not a direct link. Joyce lived in Lansdowne and went to St. Clement's Parish. Maskell had been the pastor at St. Clement's, okay? He was moved from St. Clement's to Our Lady of Victory, which is where he was living when Kathy was murdered. He was the chaplain at Keogh, but he lived at a parish. Joyce, her family lived around the corner. They all went to Mass there. They would have known him. And Joyce took part in some retreats that Maskell had for the CYO. The CYO is like a Christian youth organization. So she went to some retreats, which are like, you go away for a few days and you pray a lot and you talk to each other and you get in touch with yourself. And it's not really ever my thing, but I'm sure there's benefit to it. And we don't know exactly if he was responsible for her death, but we think that she may have seen something the night that Kathy disappeared because four days later, her body was found in a stream on the Fort Meade Army Base property. Now, Maskell was the chaplain for the Army Base. He made sure he was chaplain for the police department, for the fire department, for the Civil Air Patrol, for um, Fort Meade. The man was everywhere. He was no dummy. He was brilliant. But he must have spent every waking minute figuring out who his next victim was going to be. He was really a sicko. If there was ever the devil on earth, I think he's it. But... There are too many coincidences and the timing for us not to look at maybe a connection between Joyce, Joyce's death and Kathy's. Now, we've become friends with the Malecki family. They're wonderful. They have never been given answers. This has been almost 50 years, 1969, and they filed a Freedom of Information Act request because since it was an army base, the FBI handled that case, not the Baltimore County or Howard County Police. The FBI has given them nothing. So Abby, we talked about filing another one. She did that three years ago. Maybe somebody who works for the FBI is listening because her FOIA request went in November of 2014, and we still have not gotten Joyce's files. We've been told that there's 4,000 pages to the files on her death. And the reason that we haven't gotten them is because they have to be redacted 
which means somebody has to sit with a Sharpie and draw a line through names and dates that would be private information. So we wait, and we know that, especially in the Obama administration, that the FBI was under scrutiny because of how long it took for them to turn around on the FOIA request for people's files. So we got our, all our media folks, Tom Nugent, Tripod Media, Teresa, because she's an attorney, to write letters saying that this is of public importance and we're asking to override the time and for them to please expedite getting the files back to us. And they turned us down. So the next thing we did was we got in touch with Barbara Mikulski. And Barbara Mikulski followed up and told the FBI to please get the files out. That's been over a year. We were told we'd get them in last April. Then we were told November. And Abby has been told now that it would be April, but we're already halfway through April and we still don't have anything. So what we understand is that because the file is so large, it's still awaiting an analyst to go through it because the other files being small, it's an opportunity for the FBI to get those out more quickly so that the numbers of files coming back are bigger. You know what I'm saying? Like you can get 10 little yeah. files out to people and then there's this one of 4,000 pages, which is huge. Even Jeffrey Dahmer's wasn't that big because I had to read it for my criminology class. <laughs> anyway, so we're still waiting. And we've asked Robin Teal. She has some contacts at the FBI, and I just emailed her again today that maybe she can ask them to expedite that. Because now that we've learned so much, Shane, in the last three years about the abuse and the murders, we think that we would recognize red flags in those files that maybe an FBI analyst wouldn't be thinking about. Like, we could make connections. So that's... Yeah, agree. And I, it's, That's something that we're waiting troubling. for. It's also troubling to see that it's taking them so long. It's heartbreaking, to be honest with you, just because to say that, oh, it's so big, so we're not prioritizing it, that exactly. was a real person that was murdered. I don't care how big the file is. If this, them releasing it, I agree with you, could help the case. It could bring her justice. So I don't see why that would be an excuse. And, you know, I've met her whole family. We had several meetings at my home in Catonsville of the players in the first several months of this whole thing that we decided to pick up the charge. They're the most wonderful people. My heart breaks. Her, her brother-in-law is a retired Baltimore County police officer, and he couldn't even get anywhere. Her brother, who was her biggest advocate, Donald, who really championed the cause, he died this past year unexpectedly. It's unfortunate that we're losing time, and we don't want this to just... I don't think with the documentary coming out, this is going to be under anybody's rug anymore, but we really want administrative folks to, to say, let's come to grips with this. Let's talk about this. It really happened, and yes, we have to do everything we can because it's going to save other people and it's going to prevent clergy abuse from happening to somebody else. Because I don't know if it's just not happening as much now or if clergy are getting shrewder at 
how they're going about it. And they won't, they don't want to see us coming. We'll make phone calls if we hear somebody's even being smart with a kid. And we do, we hear a lot of that stuff. So pick up the phone and talk to the supervisor. Going back to the uh, uh, Sister Catherine, Father Maskell, it sounds like Yoletta Slitton that he is responsible for Sister Kathy's murder. Why don't we go ahead and go into the timeline that you guys created? Okay. So we have his whole life. I have to credit Abby Fitzgerald Schaub for that. Abby's very shy. She's going to be upset that I told you that. But <laughs> I told her she's going to have to go with me if people want to talk to us. It's not just, it's not about me. You guys specifically talk about him even when he was born, April 13, 1939. Was that when you were looking through his history, was there any evidence of any sexual abuse that he endured as a child? Inter- interesting question. I don't know. But I will tell you what we do know, and this is from the God Only Knows article. Haskell's mother, all right, he, she was married to his stepfather, okay? And when he was a kid, she used to make little vestments for him, priestly vestments, and he would have mass in the backyard with the neighborhood kids. I'm not making this up. And he would use Necco wafers for little hosts. Okay, you know what Necco wafers are? Those candies? I don't. All right. So, you can Google it and look at a picture. A lot of your listeners my age will know exactly what they are. <laughs> it's a roll of candies. It comes like lifesavers, but they're discs, and they're all different colors and flavors. And I want to know, I'm being so facetious, how many rolls of Necco wafers you have to buy to get enough white ones to give communion to all the kids in the neighborhood, okay? I'm just being a brat, okay? His mother was strange in that way. He didn't have a lot of social friends. His sister is still living and opted not to respond to us or to the documentary team. So she has chosen, she denies that he did anything wrong She's been in articles saying my brother didn't do anything. We don't know if he was abused. We do know that he went in the seminary when he was only 14 and he got homesick after a week. So his mom said he could come back home. He had a half-brother who was a high-ranking officer in the Baltimore City Police Department, which is how we believe some things were covered up. I don't know if he was abused. I don't know. I can't answer that question. But I think he had a very unusual childhood. Attention, friends. Are you ready to embark on a journey into the unknown this Mother's Day? Prepare to dive into the depths of your family's history with mylifeinabook.com. Each week, mylifeinabook.com sends intriguing questions uncovering the thrilling tales of your mom's past, and then she can either type her response or use their voice-to-text feature. From daring escapes to nail-biting encounters, her life becomes an epic adventure waiting to be explored. This Mother's Day, give the gift of excitement and intrigue with mylifeinabook.com.
It's a thrilling ride through your mom's life that you won't want to miss. I gave this to my mom last year, and let's just say I didn't know my mom as well as I thought I did. Check out mylifeinabook.com and use code SHANE at checkout for 10% off. Create an unforgettable gift for your mom this Mother's Day. That's mylifeinabook.com and use code SHANE for 10% off today. Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you'll get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matters more than ever. Place your money line, prop, or parlay bets with the king of sports books today. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. Bet MGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. 21 plus and present in Ohio, subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with MGM Northfield Park. For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile. And the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time. There's Granger, Offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger, For the ones who get it done. Yeah, the reason I ask is because from a psychological standpoint, a lot of people who start abusing people later in life, they have a history of it, which is just, I was just curious if you guys had yeah. uncovered anything. Yeah, I don't know. Going to the first place that first, I don't know if you'd call it a church, the first place that he was stationed at, do you know what led to him being reassigned. Are you talking about after he was ordained a priest? This would have been in 1966 okay. when he was the associate pastor. He, um, from 65 to 66, he was at the Sacred Heart of Mary's Parish. There's two of those. This one is in Baltimore. Sacred Heart of Mary in Baltimore, not Pikesville, okay? We believe he was only there a very short time, and we have not found anybody who claims to have been abused there. So we don't know about that one, okay? When he was the associate pastor at St. Clement's, he was at St. Clement's twice. After he left Sacred Heart, he went to St. Clement's and was there 66, 67, and 68. Yes, we know of many people who were abused at St. Clement's. He lived in the rectory. They were abused in his room at the rectory. He was assigned to Keo. A young man, a young boy, was abused by him at St. Clement's. And it was reported to the archdiocese. So what they did was they figured we must like boys. So we'll put him over at Keogh where there's girls. So he was living at St. Clement's, but his quote day job was to be the chaplain at Keogh. Does that make sense? 
Yeah, yeah. And rather than hanging out, right, rather than hanging out on the playground at St. Clements with the kids, and he would call some of them out of class in the afternoon. Um, he would offer them sodas with drugs in it or alcohol in the soda, soda can. So we know abuse happened at St. Clements in the rectory, both the old and the new rectory. We know that he was working at Keogh at that time, and abuse was going on in the building at Keogh, okay, in his office. Uh, sorry, dog. Okay. In his office, in the chapel, in his bathroom. When I think that we walked past those doors, only an inch was separating us from nightmares that were happening to girls on the other side of the door. It makes me sick. Yeah. Because none of us knew about this. I keep thinking we must have been in an alternate universe because I never suspected. And there are a number of women that I've just learned in the last year in my own class who were abused by him. And they were my friends, not close friends, but I never would have suspected. Yeah, and I think that it's something that with the atmosphere, you probably wouldn't be looking for it. So unless they were to come knocking at the door, right. you probably wouldn't right. notice it. I was at St. Clemens. Um, he actually, is it accurate to say that he was a supervisor of, I believe it was Boy Scouts or something? Yes, that's correct. He went on camping trips with Boy Scouts. I've seen pictures of him from the St. Clemens yearbook or parish book of him standing at a Boy Scout camp in Hartford County. Who knows how many people were impacted by this? It's gonna. There's going to be a boatload, in lieu of another word, of folks that I hope will feel comfortable and safe enough to come forward. And I know that the documentary, The Keepers, each episode will have contact information in the credits for anybody who needs to share or report something that happened to them. So, yeah, the Tripod Media has arranged for social impact producer to make sure that the message is out there and for people to have resources that they can find some help. And for Baltimore, what is the exact guidelines? Because I know that the case was dismissed because of the timing. Right. Yeah. For Baltimore, how many years does a victim have to come forward before it's no longer chargeable? In terms of criminal charges? Yes. Or civil lawsuits? Okay, the reason in 93, and I hope I'm going to get this right, that it did not go to trial was because, first of all, Teresa was a co-plaintiff. She got the same letter we did and called the attorneys, and her story was so compelling and so dramatic that they asked her to be a co-plaintiff. So she was Jane Rowe. The other woman, Jane Doe, had forgotten what happened to her. And it was in the middle of, I believe, a therapy, an acupuncture session that she began to remember. And so when she got in touch with the attorneys, it was she was retrieving her memory. And At that time, it wouldn't be an issue now, but at that time, the retrieval of memory was a brand new idea. She had retrieved the memory in the last three years, 
wasn't like she remembered it and waited five years. But the statute of limitations on abuse at that time was three years. So if you let's say you were abused when you were 18. If you didn't report it by the time you were 21, then your chance is gone. Okay, that's changed. Her retrieval of memory was not admissible in court. And the evidence was there. The information was there. People were alive. The lawsuit was against the priests, the nuns, the mother house, Christian Richter, who was a doctor that worked with Maskell and did GYN exams on girls, all the way up to the archdiocese. And it was thrown out because the retrieval of memory was not admissible in this case. I don't know how she got over that because she was by herself through all that. And I know her and she is a wonderful person. But to have the guts to go forward when you didn't have to and try and do something about this and then to be told it's not going to go to trial. Right now, the statute of limitations in Maryland has just changed with this last, what do you call it, the last session of the Maryland House and Senate, okay? I believe it's been extended. Some of our survivors went last year and the year before to ask for an extension or to abolish the statute of limitations, which really should happen. And it didn't pass. Yes, it didn't pass because the claim, and there were people that spoke for this too, the claim was that it would be too many false accusations. My feeling is, well, then try the person and see. Right. Now, I'm a retired teacher, and I certainly wouldn't want somebody to accuse me of abuse, but I think the chance of false accusations is much less likely than people who are credible wanting to criminally charge. Uh, I I believe up until this year, it was, I don't know about this wording, but it was, you had up until eight years past your seven, past the age of, seven years past the age of majority, which would mean 25. I think it's longer now. And one of your listeners can correct me because I think it is now maybe into your 30s. Research shows, Shane, that people do not usually report childhood abuse until they're in their 30s, 40s, and 50s because they just can't deal with it. For the ladies that you work with and the men as well, this is church. And I find it hard to even hear that there is a restriction on when you can make accusations. There is no time frame where murder has no statute of limitation. Right. There's no statute of limitation on murder. Right. But to abuse a child, I can't fathom why there should be a statute of limitation. The idea that there would be too many false accusation, that, that falls through because you can bring someone to court, but unless you have evidence, right. it, it's not going to get anywhere. So it's hard to fathom what the lady that you're talking about had to go through to come up to find these memories again 
speak out about it. There's proof that mm-hmm. it happened. But mm-hmm. then to be told, oh, I'm sorry, you know, you can't do anything about it. What she right. went through was horrific. Mm-hmm. And be be told by the state that, I'm sorry, you can't talk about this anymore. You know what I mean? I can't fathom that happening to me, right. let alone having to basically deal with it. You know, they're just like, well, sorry, deal with it. Exactly. It's almost which is harder, talking about it and asking for help or being told, nah, we're not going to do anything about it. mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you'll get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matters more than ever. Place your money line. Prop or parlay bets with the king of sports books today. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. Bet MGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. 21 plus and present in Ohio, subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Gambling problem? Call 1 800 Gambler in partnership with MGM Northfield Park. <laughs> 